arrived at another episode of RBA Dirt's Municipal Mania every Wednesday at 11 a.m. right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond. And today you're in for a treat. It's a Richmond Civics lesson. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. Welcome to RBA Dirt's Municipal Mania. Why, hello. Hello. Hey. And today we're going to give you a little Richmond Civics lesson. Who's excited? Yay! Yay! I know. Roll those eyes. Hey, Virginia history. All right. Oh, God. All right. So (laughs) I'm not sure, but RPS students may or may not actually know some of these things. And I guess it's a good good point, a place to put this in there. Like, the reason we're doing this is because many of the viewpoints or... This is a conspiracy. That's what this is. One big... Conspiracy. The reason that they are the way that they are and the reason that Virginia politics or Richmond politics is as shady <laughs> as it is is because of a lot of this history. Yep, and, and a lot of the people involved in shaping the way our government uh, has shaken out. That's it. We'll start with September 19th, 1733. Wait, is, is this like adding context? Yeah. Yeah. This is adding oh, context. This is, this is what adding context would be like? Yes. Oh my gosh. What do you know? Huh. I just... Yeah. just Continue. Okay. Can we just take a pause? Sure. We've got two pups in the studio right now. <laughs> we have so two I can't little concentrate. baby, almost eight-week-old puppies. One is asleep and the other one is hybrid <laughs> So this may also shape the way this Context. episode <laughs> it's going uh, shakes out. Look, she's already asleep. She's done. She's done. She's already bored to tears by this episode. Dun, Good dun, job, dun. Zelda. On September 19th, 1733, William Byrd II, our illustrious founder, hmm. created a new town named Richmond. It was just a little village that sprung up around one of his many tobacco warehouses. With slaves. All right, I just want y'all to know. Oh, you'll, you'll know. Uh-huh. So the Virginia General Assembly had put some pressure on Byrd to develop the locality, so he, he did. So we were officially founded uh, in the year 1737. With slaves. With slaves. Byrd commissioned Major William Mayo, we'll hear the name Mayo again shortly, uh, to lay out the original town grid, which was done in April of 1737. That's who we can blame? Yep. We can blame all kinds of folks. Hold on to your butts, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. So we were incorporated as a town in 1742. Hooray. Incorporated. And Byrd named the city Richmond after an English town, Richmond-upon-Thames, near London, which is now incorporated into London because the views of the James River were strikingly like that of the River Thames from Richmond Hill in England, where he spent most of his youth. Huh. Ah, William Byrd II. Wow. Anybody know anything about him? He had slaves. He sure did. He was also a disgusting bigot, misogynist, and rapey perf. Mm -hmm. He was an excellent records keeper, so we know all about his escapades, especially the disgusting sexual ones. Great. This is our founder. Our founder, friends. So it's in our blood. Denver Riggleman. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I just, I had, I was somewhere else in my mind, evidently. (laughs) You're going to want to be somewhere else when you listen to more about this guy. He was terrible to the enslaved people on his properties. He and his wife would whip, beat, humiliate, and withhold food from the people they owned to take out their aggressions on each other. Mm, per like, usual. It was a one-upsmanship of who could treat the people they owned the worst. Mm. Amazing. Also, when he got bored, 
he would harass and rape servants, both black and white. Oh. Isn't that great? Equal opportunity employer. He also played a little game with himself where he would try to bed his friends' wives, whether oh. willingly or not. So that's where you guys got that from. It's great. Okay. Hey, Richmond. Mm-hmm. This guy. This guy, whose name is plastered all over town, like Bird Park and the William Bird Community House. Mm. Because the name William Bird II engenders a very deep sense of community in me, I know. Me too. Anyway, he has some notable descendants, including Richard Evelyn Bird, for whom Richmond International Airport was originally named. Didn't he go to the North Pole? Uh, and yes. discover Agartha. He was a naval explorer, pioneering aviator, Air quotes, and explorer. discover. Dis- Discovered Agartha. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. But most notably, his descendants are U.S. Senators Harry F. Byrd and his son Harry F. Byrd Jr., virulent racists, hyper opposed to racial desegregation of public schools, and leaders of massive resistance. That's surprising. Mm, yeah. Um, they also ran the Bird Organization, which was a political machine that dominated Virginia politics from the 20s to the late 60s. Yeah. Great. So actually kind of fun time frame fact there. 1950. Do you guys remember? I think I put it on Twitter not that long ago. Um, there was like a Richmond or Virginia history book from that was approved by the Virginia General Assembly in uh-huh. 1950. Yeah. yeah. And it completely downplayed. Everything about slavery and it, like literally at one point it was pretty much like. I it mean, was an understanding. We brought them here, but like they became Christians as a result. So that's a good thing. So they're okay. Yeah. I would say though, like we made them not savages. It was a negotiation. And, <laughs> so I just think of like when we say this time frame about the bird organization that is entrenched in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And we talk about what General Assembly approved that book and kind of just the climate at the time opposing Brown v. Board. Hmm. Isn't that great? I mean, and. I don't remember learning any of that about uh, the birds Mm-mm. in Virginia history, even. No. Oh, no. I mean, I think I learned about one of them. <laughs> Built a lot of roads. And then there's a, a nice statue of Harry F. Bird at the Capitol. Yeah. Hmm. On Capitol grounds. Are there slaves buried under it? Sorry. I thought that was an appropriate place to. Never mind. I mean, you can't really talk about the Bird family without talking about slavery and without talking about oppression of black people. You can't. They are. Just Absolutely, completely intertwined and enmeshed in the beginnings of this city. The way our our illustrious government was set up was with appointed mayors in the beginning from 1782 to 1853. Maybe we can discuss at the end of this whether that was the right decision or not. Hmm. Maybe we should go back to it. We should go back to it. I don't think so. I think if we could just quickly kind of do a timeline really quick. Um, So we had appointed mayors from 1782 to 1853 Mm -hmm. and then we went to popularly elected mayors from 1853 to 1948 Mm -hmm. and then then we went back to council appointed mayors in 48 to 2005 right yikes and then we're back at popularly elected mayors (laughs) Just like, Richmond is a city that likes to test things out over and well, over. And I'm even going to say, though, I mean, if you think about the time frames of them towards the 1850s, it's interesting to me that you're coming into like the end of a civil war, I guess, or you're in the middle of a civil war, really. And you decide to go to popularly elected. So we can think about like who had the right to vote. To vote. Mm-hmm. But then we also think that right after, there were a large number of formerly enslaved people that did get the ability to vote. But then through the Jim Crow state constitution 
you then also have a reversion back to how where a, a lot of the people became disenfranchised again. And yet again, we go from having a popular elected mayor right around the time of Brown v. Board to appointed. So it's just the convenient, like, we keep going back and forth about, well, hey, is this, is it even so much this was a good government style ever? (laughs) Because it's always been used as a convenience factor of either allowing people to vote or then in turns not allowing people to vote. Vanquishing their right to. Right. And like, again, the participatory systems. Or lack thereof for so long, and then now we're here. All right, so now I'm going to say vanquish too. You like vanquish? Looking at our pattern here, <laughs> what's next? So yeah, <laughs> oh, you can't have my right. Sorry. In the next in the next fifty six years, we'll oh. change it up again. Oh God. Anyway. Yeah, but who's going to lose their right to vote? <laughs> that's my question. I mean, it seems like it's just like that's when you know, because everything that we want to do as a city, we. As an incorporated city, we get our power through the Dillon Rule from the Virginia General Assembly. All of these things, they're so reflective of climate. So you suddenly have the the, the will, the political will to get something through. Yeah. Okay. Because, I mean, we sit here and talk all the time. Is this the best form? I mean, we had... Fifth District Councilman Parker Agelasto that I mean, he has been questioning. questioned it, yeah. In yeah. council meetings, is this the best form? And not just get the mayor versus not, but having individual district council people. You know, making sure one, on one hand, everybody has one representative, but at the same time, everybody's trying to get something for their district specifically. So say you're right. Yep. Fighting most of the time against each other to get something done rather than together collectively. What did the uh, appointed mayor setup look like? All right. This was all set up actually right after uh, Murica vanquished the British. Mm-hmm. See, vanquish. You like that vanquish? You I like do. That? Is that the word of the day? It is. It's the word of the day. They were vanquished by Murica in October of 1781, and Thomas Jefferson decided that he helped decide that Richmond would be the best permanent capital of the Commonwealth of Virginia because Williamsburg was too vulnerable to attack by the British. So anyway, Aww. good old TJ, slavery, thinking was about, involved. Thinking and, about his people. Right. Bringing us all here to be safe. city was incorporated July 2nd, 1782, and a charter was written up. And in that charter said that 12 men, men, duh, girl, duh, right, were elected from the city at large. So that was the only elected thing going on in the city at the time. The mayor was selected by the 12 from within their ranks. Then they selected a recorder and four people to serve as aldermen. So I need a clarification on aldermen because in my mind, like council person, counselor, and alderman can be used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. But when I looked at the internet, the internet told me that an alderman is more of a honorary title That's what it sounds like to me is that like out of the 12, they are picking from within their ranks four people to serve as aldermen, which are seen as like the senior leadership. Like we have president and vice president. Um, I think I would assume that that's kind of a similar thing, but not having a hierarchy like that. It's just more of like these are your positions in a house of delegates. It might be the majority whip. Yeah. The majority house leader, that kind of stuff. They're the deacons. They're the deacons. They're the deacons. And so the remaining six members were common council or what we would probably refer to as city council city council people oh you know what this actually kind of even makes okay so i'm also thinking it's kind of almost like a for them to call it common council that really makes me think of like the house of delegates the house representatives right which is supposed to be a lower part of that of congress to represent then, the people right and then you have the aldermen which if that is honorary then that makes sense so that might be the upper house or the senate really right. the upper chamber mm-hmm. so um, also kind of like british parliament 
Yeah, so they're redoing the same. House of Lords, House of Commons. Okay. Kind of borrowing from that sort of Mm -hmm. system of government. So all the positions had term limits of three years. Term limits, y'all. With the exception of the mayor, who could only serve one year consecutively. Well, look at that. Term limits are awesome. I'm not really sure, though, what a mayor can get done with one consecutive year. Like, well, that's that's, that's to our year. understanding. That's, that's to our understanding of how the mayor works. Yeah. So I don't know how they did it back then, but I feel like that would be a hindrance to anybody's agenda. But maybe that's a good thing. Right? I was getting, there you go. Our very first appointed mayor was Dr. William Fushi Sr. You may recognize that name from the street. Yes. Fushi. So he was descended from a word I'd like you guys to say. Okay. Can you tell me how you pronounce that word that's on your screen? Huguenots. Huguenots. If you are French, you call it Huguenot. Huguenot. Okay, I like Huguenot. Huguenot. I like Huguenot. But oh. since we're from America, yeah. we say Huguenots. Yep. So anyway, he was descended from Huguenots. He was a physician. Anyway, he was a proponent. That's interesting also. I mean, the French Huguenots, if I remember, they were like ran out. Yeah, they were mm-hmm. they were run out of, run out of the... um, France during the Reformation because they were Protestant and huh. they were like bye, and so they came here. Oh, and actually, uh, Virginia's governor at the time gave them asylum. There you go. Fun fact. So he was a surgeon in the American Revolution. He was the president of the Medical Society of Virginia, and he was an early proponent of smallpox inoculations. So I want to say thank you for that. He was highly regarded in all of his endeavors, but I wonder how highly regarded he was by his wife. Mm. Because the poor gal pushed out seven kids for him. In that day and time, that's a lot. That's That's a lot lot of kids, right? Apparently he was a, a nice gentleman, and he was appointed Richmond's postmaster in 1808 by... Thomas Jefferson, who, not from Richmond, but had his fingers all up in it. Okay. And for um, those of us nerds who like to know where political folk are buried, he's in Shaco Hill Cemetery. Go visit him, first mayor of Richmond. Nobody else was really that consequential in those times. So we're going to move on to the era of popularly elected mayors. That's 1853 to 1948. The first era. The first era, yes. Popularly elected mayors, volume one. They replaced the city charter in March of 1851, and they decided that all city officials had to be elected. All of them. Uh, This method normally works as long as the city is small, and most voters can personally know the qualifications for the men, men, Mm -hmm. whom they were voting for. And then uh, in 1918, they changed it again. They changed it so that the mayor could control the administrative policies of the city and was responsible for most of the key appointments. And then um, as the city grew, uh, apparently the custom of electing all officials became a little too complex for folks. And as a result, a short ballot process was adopted and the mayor was expected to fill all the remaining offices with qualified appointees. (laughs) Can you imagine if we did that today? If the mayor was responsible for appointing everyone. Mm. Um, I'm trying to imagine that right now. <laughs> and I think he would spend his entire first year just working on that. That's kind of intense, right? Yeah. So um, I wanted to talk about uh, a significant being during that period, Joseph C. Mayo. He was our first popularly elected mayor of Richmond. 
beginning in 1853. I selected him because he reminds me of our history, or problem really, of electing the same people over and over and over again, and how their influence has become so deeply ingrained in this city and the way we work. So uh, his great-grandfather was one of the founders of Richmond, along with William Byrd II. They surveyed the lots. Great. But here's what I thought was actually really interesting. So the first Joseph Mayo, the great-grandfather of Mayor Joseph Mayo, owned 37 enslaved individuals in 1783. Okay. He wrote his will in 1780 where he attempted to free his slaves. Interesting, right? Where he, he differs a lot from his descendants in this. So how many of them were his kids? Good question. That was a common trend for <laughs> slave masters to, who wanted to free, illegally free certain slaves in their possession. They were typically family members. Yeah, because it was illegal at this time uh-huh. to yeah. free slaves at the time of your death. It sure was. But so as an alternative, he asked his executors to divide his slaves among his relatives. And there was major litigation, and it went before the Virginia Supreme Court. But judges decided that Mayo's slaves were freed by special litigation. Good for him. That's great. His descendant, Joseph C. Mayo, not so nice. But his uncle John, Mayor Mayo's uncle John, built the Mayo Bridge from across the James River to Manchester. Great, huh? And he wrote a guide to the city in 1820 because he knew so much about the city. Uh, he was the. I really want to make a joke about mayonnaise and ugh, and, city and, the guides ma- and Dukes. How much I hate and... mayo, unless it's Dukes. <laughs> and even then, I'm only going to eat it if it's mixed into something. But that's for another show, right? We should totally do a municipal mania about the pros and cons of mayo. Moving on. So he was the city attorney for 30 years, and then he was elected to city council in 1852, and. He was elected mayor in 1853 as the first popularly elected mayor. Ordered new fire engines. People thought he was great. He opened up the pump house so that the firemen would have some water to pump on the fires that were happening all the time because everything's made of wood. And he remained our mayor through the American Civil War. He arranged uh, for the Broken Bra House to become the White House of the Confederacy. Oh, that's nice. And he also helped Richmond City Council loan the Confederate States $50,000 as well as appropriate $10,000 to fortify the city during the Civil War. During this time, he became known for his authoritarian manner. Can we get to the burning part? Yeah, we're going to get to the burning part because it's (laughs) going to be real good. Just to add a a point of reference for those people in history that don't know. So during this time, the slaves were um, actually freed. And but they were still not treated as if they were freed in Virginia for another five years. Yeah. Just just so that we know under this mayor, under this mayor. Continue. Um, He became known for his authoritarian manner, especially for stern treatment, including whippings of free blacks accused of non felonies, such as stealing small amount. I doubt he would have had any hand in freeing family slaves. And kind of for, I guess, context, non felonies, stealing small amounts. It was just this year that they raised the amount for what a felony is mm-hmm. from $200 to $500. Woohoo! So anything over that or property value, I mean, I think I have like a cell phone that's worth. Yeah, so you still get a felony for stolen iPhone. So that's persisted. Okay. Joseph Mayo was involved in uh, a fun little incident in 1863 where there were basically bread riots. There were riots because there was not enough food for the common folk in Richmond during this time in the Civil War. And so even though there were speeches given by himself and President Jefferson Davis and Governor Letcher at the time, the public guard that was organized by Mayo, consisting of 
mostly people 16 to 45 years old. I say people, I mean men. He ordered them to fire upon the crowd to disperse them. Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. They were just common folk. Don't worry, y'all. Around April Fool's Day there was a, um, of 1865, there was an order coming from Jeff Davis to pack up the Confederate government and get the F out of Dodge. And Mayo worried that the citizens would burn the entire city down on the way out. And gosh darn it, he sure was right. He was right about one thing that they were going to destroy their own city. Yep, they tried to take all of the alcohol <laughs> from everyone, and they dumped it in the river. Yeah, so they were concerned about was that, in theory, at this point, the Union's, like, coming to take Richmond in their minds. So then the next goal is, we need all of the ammunition. Like, we, like if, if nothing else is happening here, they're not taking us with their own stuff. So let's get all the ammunition together. Burn it down rather than give it to them. And burn yeah. it all down and... Catch the James River on fire, too, while you're at it, because that's where all the booze was dumped. Yeah. Yeah. Only you can prevent booze fires. city fires. No. Where's the Smokey the Bear ad for that one? Yeah. Huh? Only where was that at? Only you can prevent James River fires. Hmm. So, as everything's burning, uh, Mayo jumps on his horse and heads east to try to find the nearest Union Army officer to surrender to. And he finds one. He finds one named Major Stevens. And he surrenders to him. And then about an hour later, to add insult to injury, aw, he had to surrender again to the commanding officer, General Weitzel. Yeah, had to do it twice. Aww. Rub it all in. He was a staunch Confederate, that mayo, and so um, that must have really hurt. Poor thing. Aw. Anyway, after Lincoln's assassination, he was arrested. I, I think it's important just to yep. re-underline here, um, the South surrendered. Surrendered. Like, that's been done, right? Right. Which means... Oh, no. They lost. They still fighting. I don't know. Trying to rise again. They still fighting. It is not going to happen. See ya! And I wouldn't want to be I think someone just, like, hasn't gotten their Morse code yet. That's what it is. <gasps> that's what? what it is. So, sorry, I'm still on the, like, they surrendered, right? I just realized it dawned on me. They just haven't gotten the Morse code they message. They haven't gotten the message. Oh, they're still waiting. Yeah. Still waiting on that message. I think that's what it is. Okay. Well, to sum up on... The delightful Joseph C. Mayo, our first popularly elected mayor, he was arrested by General Grant. And then our sympathetic governor at the time, Francis Pierpont, allowed him to resume office. But they were like, no, that's not going to happen. You gone because, oh, my God, he set up his own little court where he could have his vigilantes go out and round up black people and charge them as vagrants. <sighs> charged them with whatever trumped-up charges he felt like, and then threatened to return them to slavery. And so... Hashtag justice system right now. Right now. See, the more things change, the more things stay the same, right? So General John Turner was like, no, don't obey him. Gone. And they replaced him with a freaking Yankee. They replaced him with the Yankee. That's such a Richmond thing to do, too. And can you imagine how burned his little butt was by Joseph Mayo? He he died of dementia, by the way. But he's also buried at Shaco Hill Cemetery if you want to go over there and, like, fart in that grave's general direction. Oh, snap. Our last popularly elected mayor at that time. I'm sorry. Okay. Wait. Mayo was... I forgot we were in the popularly elected people. Like, yes, Mayo he was, was popularly elected. Over I and just, over and over. People again. freaking loved him. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. So think about who's, who's electing him. And he was the one who was falsely criminalizing blacks, so that was a 
totally accepted thing. Yep, totally accepted thing in this time. By Point the very out. end of this era, which was 1948, Horace Hall Edwards served as our very last popularly elected mayor for this era. Um, but he wasn't very interesting. So I'm not going to tell you about him. It's kind of boring. That was the that was the end of the but bicameral now, system of government. And bicameral means a legislative body. Yep. Having two branches or chambers, which would be the mayor and the council, were making legislative decisions at the time. And so they were like, no, let's not do that anymore. We're moving on to city council-appointed mayors. In 1948. Wait, you guys, you missed the, the best part. What? He was so ill, and then he was depressed because his son died in September 1865, and he lost the slave property and the plantation. Yes, that was a huge blow to him. He never got over losing his power over black people. See? I mean, so now you can go far in the general direction of his grave. Continue. Joseph Mayo, fully entrenched in the history of Richmond. Hi, this is Jordan Christie, one of Melissa's board op minions. I'm being forced to tell you that you're listening to one of the, or no, not one of the, the best one. The okay. best. Get it right. The best. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hi, this is Jordan Christie, one of Melissa's board op minions. I'm being forced to tell you that you're listening to the best show ever in radio history, RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m., whether you like it or not, right here on WRARLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. Is that good? <laughs> That'll do. Whoop-dee-scoop. scoop dee whoop whoop dee scoop dee poop poop dee scoop dee Moving on to city council appointed mayors from 1948 to 2005, y'all. So this, you know, carried on until fairly recently. Yeah, so this was going on. So now this is where, now in 1948. Now we're into Jim Crow. Yeah. Yes. Now you're into Richmond City might be majority black at this point. People have rights to vote and now... That becomes a problem because that would obviously flip who is um, who's in charge, really. The way this works out is it's one unicameral chamber council composed of nine elected members from each of the nine districts. They had the authority to issue bonds and enact ordinances and resolutions. We're familiar with that. Uh-huh. But the position of mayor was appointed and was mainly ceremonial, which, you know, might be for good reason. The majority of the administrative and appointment responsibilities were transferred to the city manager who was appointed by the city council. Council appointed the city manager, the school and library boards, trustees of the retirement system, the city attorney, the city clerk, the city auditor, the city assessor, and the Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority and various other boards and commissions. But they created a school board. So during this time, the school board materialized. And they're responsible for the city's education system and appointing the superintendent who heads up the administration. Right. Like when we go back to like modern day. Yes. So they were not struggles. Yeah. They weren't elected. They were appointed. The school board appointed the superintendent and had uh, its own administrative organization, which was headed by the school board with assistance to the superintendent. The administration underneath the superintendent was responsible for hiring teachers, providing teaching material, the review and evaluation of school programs, student testing, and the maintenance of school building inventory. 
So this all sounds fairly familiar. Yep. Now, the chief executive officer, or the city manager, was required to attend all city council meetings. Oh. Can you imagine if our mayor was required to do that? I mean... I wouldn't say no. It would be a lot more awkward and uncomfortable. Oh, mm. yeah. But it'd be more interesting for us, though. I mean, I'm there for it. I'm not, I'm like, to be clear, like, I would be there for it, but Ooh. that would be Basically, large. they were the, the conduit between city council and the mayor, who was basically just sitting in a chair, and all the rest of the city administration. So I just think this is like, sorry, let me mm-hmm. sidestep back here on the school board thing. <laughs> So, okay, so we have a situation until 2005 when city council appointed who the mayor was, which is like the ceremonial position, and then also the city council is appointing basically all of the key positions of the Mm -hmm. city manager, which would be like the CAO. Everything, yeah. The school board, which was not elected by the The people. people. Mm -hmm. It was appointed by council. So your your selection of of your council person meant a whole lot because they were everything. In the middle of Jim Crow south mm-hmm. of Richmond in Virginia. And then, so 2005 is when this switches back, we'll ultimately get to, mm-hmm. but in 2007 is when the um, Gang of 26 letter, which basically what that letter was, was it was 26 business leaders in Richmond came and was were asking the General Assembly for basically another appointed school board again mm-hmm. to rechange the charter. So I think it's kind of an interesting context when you think about school board is, you know, as soon as it gets back into the hands of the people within two years, they're like, uh, uh-uh, uh, we want there were, else. and I mean, the business leaders were like, I mean, what's his name? Um, Farrell, mm-hmm. Tom Farrell, Tom, Tom Farrell, Farrell, I believe was the drafter of it. And he was actually on the superintendent search committee Dominion. two times. The most recent two times he was the chairman of the superintendent search committee. But I just think it's interesting when we talk about things that are leading up to power. You know, in 1948, we started this conversation with appointed mayors of how that really disenfranchised and went hand in hand with Jim Crow South. And then when the power gets put back in the hands of the people, within two years, it's being asked to take the control back out of the hands of the people. This system of government is actually used uh, by about 40 percent of American cities with populations over 2,500. Interesting little tidbit. And most of our modern figures of note came out of this period of council and this mayor system. Most notably, I wanted to say, was Oliver Hill. He was the first black person elected to city council, and he was a civil rights attorney. He served on council from 48 to 50, and he worked against racial discrimination, helped end the doctrine of separate but equal. Got so many things in black civil rights. I mean, equality and pay for black teachers, access to school buses, voting rights, jury selection, employment protection. I mean, it's everywhere. He's won lots of accolades. He even has a few things named after him in the city, and I wanted to discuss those with you. How do you feel about the street where the city jail and the juvenile and domestic relations court building that's named for him is? Like, what do you feel about that area, Oliver Hill Way? being named after him well i mean it only makes sense that he's a civil rights attorney and he was fighting for the freedom of blacks that the place that jails them would (laughs) Would be named after him right named after him that only makes sense in richmond i i think it's like super it's like super depressing to me because specifically (laughs) (laughs) i mean like i I was gonna go with polish because like it's it's the most obvious and typical i think thing and i can definitely hear the in theory argument of well, he, he contributed his whole life to this and i also think of just how level depressing it is that mostly you just ran off a handful of things that he did and participated in and how much progress one person made 
-hmm. to then look and see the things that do bear his name. It took all of this for us to just get here. And then we're going to name it after him where it's like we're still, I mean, I, I appreciate that something got named but i definitely feel like it had to have been like a tongue-in-cheek backhanded he should, have at oh. least, he should at least have a statue right beside robert e lee i'm just saying just saying there there you go maybe we could put him on that pedestal no just put him right and beside him beside him i'm cool with that as a big old middle finger separate but equal right so they can look at each other put him on a horse even it's like you know <laughs> on a unicorn right. he deserves that sort of majestic representation i feel so another person on that same council as oliver hill was who has something named after him is edward e willie uh he's not as significant as you think but he has a bridge named after him but what i thought was most interesting is that his descendant is kathleen willie who was a figure in the monica Lewinsky scandal in 1998 oh god another figure of note eleanor parker shepherd who also has a little bit of controversy around her. She was the first woman to be elected to the city council Uh, by her peers in 1954. She began her career, though, as a room mother at her daughter's elementary school and then became part of the Ginter Park Parent Teacher Association. Aww. Aww. And in 1952, she became the president of the Richmond Federation of PTAs. During her stint on council, she was elected to serve as vice mayor in 1960 and then mayor in 1962, becoming the first female in these positions. That's awesome. But during her two years as mayor, uh, the city faced turmoil as massive resistance continued on a state level. And she worked to promote urban renewal through the Richmond Citizens Association, which became Richmond Forward, that helped pave the way for Interstate 95. Ladies, what did Interstate 95 do to our city? It, it Jackson promoted, Ward and it promoted urban renewal. <laughs> Renewed them right on to one side of the of the the interstate where they could keep them from out of downtown. But that's, I mean, ripped some neighborhoods apart. I'm just saying. She worked to do that. And I think it's also of note that. Um, Originally, the proposal to build 95 where it was was actually rejected by referendum of Richmond City voters two or three times. Mm-hmm. And to get around that, basically, the city gave up the authority to a general assembly level board that now still controls the highway. And basically, they just overrode the will of voters who obviously could see. And there was, if you look back and you go back to like Times Dispatch papers, there's advertisements that were calling it slum clearance. Mm-hmm. So it was billing places that people live, which is right in Jackson Ward, as slums. Well, and then homes with families. Destroying them. And, generations. And again, more articles that put back the fact that there was not enough houses for people to go to. Um, mm-hmm. there were never, it was never intended to be built for that many. And that's where you get public housing that's built. So you look at around the same time. That was the introduction of public housing as well. Gilpin Court. Gilpin Court. It's yep. right there. Um, and if you think about like really to me, the most, where I can think of it in my mind of where you can really see, like you see where 95 is in relation to middle of Gilpin Court and you can see exactly what it cuts people off from, which would have yeah. been the business district. It would have been from jobs. It would have been from communities. It would have been from where they get groceries everything Mm -hmm. gone you have this highway there but again like she was somebody that you know i mean so does it it, does it take away from her accomplishments that she was part of this it tarnishes her character does it tarnish her uh record as you know the first woman 
I mean, no, she's still the first there. woman. It didn't change. It didn't change that. No, but, but do you it feel just like puts it's into less perspective. Of right. Yeah, it just puts into perspective. It doesn't really change the things that she did. This was also something that she did. Well, I mean, does it change your perspective of her? No, she's just like every other racist white person that ruled Richmond. She did what you know. She did great things for the city, but at the same time, kept her foot on the necks of black people in the city in her own way. This was how she communicated it. Other people communicated it through you know, wrongly criminating black people or enslaving them after they'd been free. Hers was taking a highway to promote development and community development and city development, urban renewal, to isolate a group of people from city resources that they deemed were not something that they needed. I think, I mean, to hear that part of it, honestly, it makes more sense to me as to why she was able to get elected Mm -hmm. in that time frame. As the first woman. As the first woman. Mm -hmm. I don't think it takes away from the fact that she still accomplished it, but at the same time, I think we have to put in context, it is a little bit different to me of saying, hey, this is a woman who's going to fight for advancement of women or fight for equality, anything like that. And I think it is a very, if we go back to context and we think about the, the criticisms around the Women's March um, following the inauguration and yeah. you know who, Hashtag who is white that feminism inclusive of and I think that's where it's like okay so this is somebody who and this is in the and around the same time period for a period of time actually you had the middle class that that was not in favor of closing down schools because mm-hmm. it would impact them and that was frequently like white moms mm-hmm. such as our first elected city councilwoman basically the place where you end up getting white flight is once people were able to say i'm only going to fight to keep schools open long enough for me and my family to move out of here out Mm -hmm. and then as soon as they were out of that situation that's when people realized okay so now the only way to fix this is by busing across city county lines and then that's where you started again having massive resistance against integration of schools which if you then go back and you look joe biden was in Congress, now we're like in the 70s when all of this part is happening, like he's in Congress and he was really one of the people that led the fight against integration mm-hmm. across city county lines because in his logic, it was how do I keep getting elected? So I, I think it's all like, I don't think that it takes away from the fact that she was able to accomplish something. It just for me, it adds context about, you know, how. And I think it does kind of, for me, I would never look at her as a, a, a bastion of feminism. And But again, maybe it's a bastion of white feminism white feminism she can still be great she did but something just, yeah like, yeah it's important it's just important to add context nice. to everything so she can still be great because she did a lot of great things for the city but in terms of understanding she did a lot of great things for the white people well that's what i'm city, saying yeah. Under, understanding what that means in in context of who she's helping and who she's hurting that's different but it's also not, it's very indifferent according to everyone in front of her ah uh, but talk about lifting up Black Richmonders, let's move on to Henry L. Marsh III. Hey, Mr. Marsh. Civil rights leader and politician who was elected to Richmond City Council in 1966. And in 1970, council chose him as their vice mayor. This is during the time in the 70s where activist Curtis Holt Sr. challenged Richmond's plan to annex more territory from Chesterfield County as designed to dilute the voting power of African-American citizens. Also, as a side note, if you remember um, when Marsh was elected, I believe that's also when like 6th Street Marketplace was going to build a, a physical bridge of the racial divide in Richmond. But after this redistricting in 1977, blacks won five of the nine council seats. But this is also the time period, I think, of when you go into like the 
eighth and the ninth district and I think parts of the fourth district and like this this used to be Chesterfield County and mm-hmm. they were told to be able to, for the, to get them to agree with it they were told and promised saying hey as a city we're gonna have better infrastructure and yep. it was it was parts of town that were white people that they were trying to get into mm-hmm. the city limits and they were basically promised with sidewalks and better paving and garbage disposal or duty whatever I don't whatever mm-hmm. trash duty because like I know when I moved here from Chesterfield, which is a totally different time, but I'm over here like, y'all don't bag your leaves. Like I, I think that there's this perception that you know in Chesterfield that's what you have to do. You have to bag them, get them onto the street yourself. Like there is no yeah. ifs and their butts. So these things where it's like, oh, but you know, it's a city. It's unique. It's different. Because you think about the arguments in favor of the vacuuming, it's it's more of a hazard. Uh, we're in a smaller space, and these are things that are could be posed as like, hey, this is a good thing, everybody. And so then you go into now these areas which no longer in some in some places still i mean it's still majority white but a lot of places now it's flipping to and has been a minority population for a very long period of time who is now still struggling and fighting for sidewalks right they They still literally don't have good drainage and sidewalks in these districts that were annexed from chesterfield still and it was like i mean hearing it i people standing up at the city meeting i was here when it happened I'm still waiting on what I was promised. And it's I'm been still years. waiting on side sidewalks. Right. Yeah. And just the amount of money that's, you know, I mean, Northside, at least I have a sidewalk. There's definitely like a tree growing up in the middle of it. But like. Northside was also a different level of black independence and black mm-hmm. wealth and black empowerment, too, during mm-hmm. the city, even though they were purposely isolated and <laughs> picked on. Yeah. They still found that motivation to make something really great for themselves. The Hippodrome, that whole era of black history in Richmond is like so fire. My grandparents drove two hours from all the way down Route 10 in their younger days, which Route 10 is treacherous now. I can only imagine what it was like at that time. Just to go to the Hippodrome to see James Brown. One, two, three, four. Get up, get on up, get up. Well, I remember I found a bunch of stuff over kind of at North Avenue and Brooklyn Park Boulevard. There was an entire era of black clubs yeah. and music and the, the names that have come to these places in Richmond. And it's now, I think, the Dollar General. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it, and as Steve clubs buildings. started to close and, and people started moving out and all these different things, like it's just interesting to see the progression, but also see the places that are just not there. Well, they, they, that part of history wasn't quite preserved. Not convenient. Yeah. It's okay. It's being gentrified, so it's coming back. It's coming back. Well, back to Mr. Marsh. He was elected by the city council in 1977 to be the first black mayor of Richmond. Mm-hmm. And he continued on until 1982 and stayed on the council even after that until 1991 when he was elected to state senate. But while he was on council, I thought this was pretty significant. He led a coalition of black council members who made substantive changes in the city, starting with the city manager's replacement by a manager more willing to address minority issues. They adopted a human rights ordinance, worked on downtown Richmond's revitalization, and ensured appointment of African Americans to boards and commissions to reflect their contributions to the city, but also to reflect what the city looked like. Yay. And he's still alive, y'all, so go give him a hug. He didn't retire from Virginia Senate until 2014, and he is still, I'll see him at meetings. Mm -hmm. And he's fantastic, and you should go give him a high five, and we should also consider putting up a monument to him. Just saying. I think he's monument worthy. Mm -hmm. 
anyway, we'll just wrap up with the last notable, I feel, mayor during this time and council person during this time, which was Timothy M. Kane. Tim Kane was elected uh, to serve for the second district uh, for Richmond City Council from 94 to 98. Then he was appointed mayor and served from 98 to 2000 and went on to become the governor of Virginia and a state senator. He still is currently a state senator and he ran on the ticket with Hillary Clinton in 2016 as vice president. And he's currently up for re-election this November November. against Corey Stewart. Oh, dear. Which is also the South trying to rise again. He hasn't gotten the Morse code. He has yet. not gotten that message yet. Still waiting on that. So, Tim Kaine's always I'm interesting seeing. to me because his wife, Ann Holton, she was actually the Secretary of Education for Virginia for a while. Yes, she was. But then also her father it was, is Linwood Holton, mm-hmm. who obviously has a namesake of a school, which is actually kind of close to where the, the Canes live over in Northside. Former Side. Governor Linwood Holton. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Former Governor Linwood Holton, who sent his daughters to a majority black school during integration when he lived on the governor's mansion property and he was actually a Republican. So it's just interesting. I mean, there's probably a, a bunch of other things we could say about what Holton, Lynn Holton didn't do, but it's just interesting kind of the position that then you have Tim Kaine. I've also seen articles where his son's gotten arrested protesting. Yeah. I think it's right twice. Yeah. And you've heard, if you ever hear Anne speak, that's one of the stories stories that she tells a lot, is how that shaped her um, career in pursuing redevelopment and reformation in education was, was her experience having her father send her as the daughter, as the you know daughter of the governor to this well, majority black it's, school. It's state property. You, you can send your kids wherever you want. Like so There is no school district. You don't have an assigned district. You can mm-hmm. literally take them where you want to take them. So that was the statement. Yeah, it was. I mean, having your child be a guinea pig and you just, know, is, a, is a big deal. Yeah. Also, though, being the governor, a Republican governor, mm-hmm. which I think is a big deal. It's also it's interesting because those things kind of switch back and forth. I mean, we talked about how the bird was a Democrat political machine. and But the I Democrats could, of then are not the Democrats of well, today. And the Republicans is, of then are not the Republicans of today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying, and but I'm like I want to like soapbox for another 50 minutes about political parties and how terrible they are. But anyway, oh, continue. don't don't do it. The very last appointed mayor was Rudolph McCullum Jr. Rudy, who served from 2000 to 2004, and then the charter was changed to allow again for popularly elected mayors. McCullum decided to run for mayor for his seat and received an extremely low percentage of the vote, Aww. losing to former governor L. Douglas Wilder, who was part of changing the city charter by a margin of over 60 percent though so like he got spanked it's actually really interesting because like you know when you think about these charter changes like i'd really be curious to know about the one previous to this because i'd been reading about this charter change and there were packs and this is not the first time it had come up it had failed previously so you know i think we talked about there's probably some positives of having popularly elected mayors regarding voter um yeah disenfranchisement. let's discuss this as we move right into popularly elected mayors when the charter changed yeah, that's how it's going. Perfect. With. Yeah, that whole time period, it was not an easy decision. Just like today for the meals tax, you have two sides of people that are very clearly lobbying mm-hmm. and having campaigns to really get legislation pushed through. Mm-hmm. This one had it too. And it's just, it's interesting to figure out why 2005? What brought us there? Well, what brought us there was in 2002, uh, former governor L. Douglas Wilder, our first black governor. Mm-hmm of the great commonwealth of virginia and u.s rep tom blyley who also used to be a mayor of richmond got together and decided to change the charter and bring back that popular elected mayor they created a non-governmental committee to study changing the charter to a strong mayor form of government and a petition led by attorney and wilder advisor guess who i can't say it 
Who? I, I don't Mr. Referendum King himself, Paul Goldman, he gained enough signatures to put the question on the ballot. So on November 4th, 2003, the proposal passed with a huge majority in favor. Is it 85%? I'd say I'm fascinated by it. I mean, it's interesting. I think it's impressive for somebody to be able to get anything on a referendum. Like, it takes a lot of tenacity. But, you know, it's fascinating that there's this referendum. And the next one that we really hear a lot about is more recent. And Same. Same folks. Hmm. Interesting. Well, he knows how to do that. Yeah. Clearly, he knows how to do it well. And so, on January 1st, 2005... The city of Richmond began operation under the mayor-at-large form of government. The mayor is no longer chosen from among the city's nine elected council members, but is selected, is elected at large by the citizens of the city of Richmond. That doesn't necessarily mean that a council person will become mayor. Nope. We had council folk run for mayor this past time, and they did not win. Like we said, the first elected mayor under this new structure was the Honorable L. Douglas Wilder. He did real well. 81.61% of the vote. Well, yes, that Hmm. large black population we have in Richmond. And we've had three black mayors since. The strong mayor form of mayor council government usually consists of an executive branch, a mayor elected by the voters for a four-year term, and a unicameral council also elected to a four-year term as the legislative branch. So the mayor does not make any legislative decisions. So the unicameral, I mean, we talked about in the very beginning, the alderman position. So that would be the the bicameral, I think. Mm-hmm. Where then this one doesn't have the whole, like, hey, this is you've elected, there's an upper or a lower. It's mm-hmm. just everybody has an equitable, non-tenure-based. Yep. Oh, man, I just realized that Reva would be an alderman based on tenure. Sorry. Yep, she sure would. Wow. The nine-person city council elects a president and vice president of council. Currently, we have Chris Hilbert of the 3rd District as president and Cynthia Newbell of the 7th District as vice president. The elected mayor is given almost total administrative authority with a clear wide range of political independence with the power to appoint and dismiss department heads without council approval. Mm-hmm. The mayor is also in charge of preparing and administering the city budget. But, as we all know, it has budget- to be approved by city council. Yes, indeed. So abuses in this form of government led to the development of the council manager form of local government. I bet. By the way. <laughs> I bet. The mayor also appoints a chief administrative officer like our Selena Cuffey Glenn, who supervises all the department heads, repairs the budget, coordinates the departments, you know, does all the real work. I think it's interesting that there is a uh, term limit for mayor. Mm-hmm. but not a term limit for council. What do you guys think about, you know, we started out with in the very beginning of Richmond City government with term limits. There was term limits very for our city council folk, limit. very clear, three years, that's it. Three consecutive years, that's it. And one for mayor. And now you've got a max of two four-year terms for mayor and unlimited four-year terms for your city council folks. Unlimited Which access. I mean, it's actually pretty reflective of our state and federal systems. Yeah. And, and how we do things here anyway. You know, we have elected the same people over and over and over and over again. And we've just moved them up higher along the, the way. And that's and like the whole incumbency advantage. Mm-hmm. It's, that's a place where, like, if somebody talks about there's anyone that you don't agree with that's been in a while, it's, it gets harder and harder to get them out the longer that they've been there. Yep. And then when we have elections like we had in 2016 where everybody and their brother signs up and gets signatures to run in a district, you end up just muddying the entire waters when it comes to getting an incumbent out. Yeah. 
Well, you end up splitting the vote, and that's where people don't understand how the the process. I I don't think I I, I don't want to say they don't understand, but I don't think they take it into account. Mm-hmm. You know, when you allow personal vendettas or private packs to push you into an election, what that means for the likelihood of winning. You're just thinking about you getting the votes that you need to get, but you don't take into account how you're going to be splitting one particular group of votes to where with someone else where the incumbent still ends up winning by a slim margin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With incumbents, I mean, what ends up happening also with this kind of district-based representative thing is the same thing that we have happen in Congress. It's people that look at it and you see that Congress has the lowest approval rating. But at the same time, it has so many incumbents that yeah. keep getting reelected the over and over and over. Running incumbents, yeah. And what people do is they say, well, I hate Congress as a whole, but I love my representative, especially in the House of Representatives, because that is your person. Yeah. And that's where we start seeing this game of political jockeying between all the districts because ultimately they know that there was 10,000 people in the third district that voted a little bit over 10,000 people for Chris Hilbert. And he won about 60% of the vote. There were three people that split 40% of the vote against him. And then you can start looking into precincts. You can see where Chris Hilbert got 85% of the votes because it was two precincts. And then he made up so much ground there. So you can start to look and see where the downside of it is, is that even though people can sit there and say, I don't agree with counsel, they still feel like their person is looking out for them. And they keep voting that person in over and over. So because everybody does that, nothing we changes. S- we still end up in the same spot. And then that's how they end up trying to get these projects that are also in. I wish there was a way to do it because I think also the whole goal partially was to make sure that there was representation, not just having everybody as an at-large position elected from one part of the city. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if I look and you can sit there and see disparities in voting numbers. Like I think there was one district or council race that had six, seven thousand voters. That's you a know? neighborhood. Whereas it's ten thousand in all the third. So it's it's how do you how are you able to protect people but at the same time eliminate this game of politics in the background. But I do think if nothing else, we need staggered terms, regardless of term limits. In school board, you have the entire board turnover in one year. Yep. One election. That's what happened, 2016. We really need to do something about staggered terms. Before we shut it all down, I think this is actually an interesting part of the mayoral elections where the winner has to win at least five of the nine city council districts. And if there's no clear winner, there's a runoff. And I just, I really think that that is um, an interesting way to do it. I mean, it's kind of like our very own um, electoral college. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. But in a little bit of a less, like, because you don't have numbers of representatives assigned based on population of your area. But it is, it's definitely a protection to make sure that it's not one voting district. Yeah, you better win a majority of these districts. Which is something that we actually saw come into play in the 2016 election. Who's going to end up being in this runoff? Mm-hmm. And then out of nowhere, everybody oh, was surprised. Stoney took it. So here we are. Here we are in modern times. And we've now gone from 17... 82 to 2018. That is the history of Richmond city government, folks. Mm -hmm. How do we all feel after that? Any final thoughts? I mean, what's more impressive, not not actually impressive, but ironic, interesting, is that we started out in one place and we've swapped this thing how many times? Yeah. And some of the same problems that we were dealing with or that a certain group of people were dealing with throughout that history, it's like no advancement happened. We're still in the same struggle for affordable housing and food equity and job equity. And through that time, we've had 
black mayors and black governors, and you still have a city that's majority black that still has a lot of black problems related to socioeconomic class. I'll say it again. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Fran, do you want to take us out? Well, you know, so Richmond is still racist. Flint still has dirty water, and RPS is still not fully funded. Boom. See y'all next week. That's all, folks. We hope you leave today's episode a little more informed about how Richmond got its government. If you would like to discuss this topic or any other topic municipal government related, hit us up across all social media at RVA Dirt. Until next time, folks, stay classy, Richmond, and stay involved. <laughs>